Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special, it's always special, Sunday mailbag edition. I am the reasonably special Scott Phillips, and he is the very special Andrew Page. How are you, mate? I'm very, I'm very good, very special. Thank you, mate. You are very special. In all, not, not <laughs> My mum says I'm special. Not even with air quotes, mate, not even with air quotes. <laughs> uh, you you apparently started a business, you run a business called strawman.com. Uh, what's that business again? We're a, we're a private online investment club. Oh, okay. For people who like to manage their own money uh, sensibly rather than paying others to do it poorly. Let me put it that way. Fascinating. I do, uh, I do, I did see during the week uh, that you're going to be hosting uh, the Australian Shield Association Conference. Uh, and in the original version of the tweet, you were Andrew Page from strongman.com, which I quite, I quite liked. Turns out strongman.com is some industrial products company. So strawman.com is the place you want to go if <laughs> yes. you want to find out more yes. from Andrew. <laughs> Yeah. Mate, are you feeling are you feeling better after your rant on Friday? Uh, well, I am. Um, but you know, the the irony is, I could have gone for another three hours. So we, <laughs> we, we scratched the surface. Speaking of special episodes, we we could have done like a four hour deep dive into that. Oh, but uh, so it was. It was nobody it was, would listen to. People like no. I'll do that. Yeah, that way I know which ones to avoid. <laughs> It's just it's cathartic, you know. It's good to it's it's a good a good rant is underrated. I think it helps helps you get a lot of things off your chest. It probably doesn't change anything, but it just makes you feel a bit better. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> on, on that on that basis, I do feel a bit better. Thank you. Thanks for good, asking, mate. I'm 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 very glad to hear it. Very glad to hear it, mate. Uh, we got some great questions. I'm going to lead with a reminder to people: if you want your question answered. Uh, hit us up, info at fool.com.au. Hit us up on one of the socials. I'll give those a bit later. Um, if you've got any questions, comments, feedback, stuff you want us to cover, please let us know. Uh, I say semi-regularly, this is the episode that we do uh, to basically deal with the stuff you want to talk about, which is frankly more interesting and useful and less ranty than a regular Friday episode. Oh, no guarantees. No guarantees okay, there'll dear. be less rants. Oh, yeah. You know what's scary about that? Andrew hasn't even seen the questions yet. He's already planning to rant. So that, that gives you some sense of what I'm dealing with. <laughs> Any excuse. With. Any excuse will do. <laughs> Mate, the first one comes from Adam. He says, hi, I'm not sure if this is... Oh, sorry. Hi, guys. Love your show. And find myself checking the podcast app on Sundays to see if the mailbag has appeared yet. He says in brackets, I should get out more. (laughs) Before I start, oh dear, I can associate with this. I just wanted to let you know how uncool dads can be, especially 54-year-old dads, says Adam. When I first started listening to your podcast about a year ago, I would play old episodes in the car driving the kids to school, mostly for myself, but hoping hopefully some might sink in with the Rugrats and get them investing. Mike, this is a nice compliment. Uh, my t- <laughs> finishes with a laugh though. My ten-year-old daughter asked why I liked this particular podcast, and I told her they had a great knowledge base and skin in the game from years in the business, not some twenty-year-old Gen whatever. <laughs> but mostly they are passionate and so excited about it. You could tell, he says, because they talk so far. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to the put t- us on like one point five times speed, do you? So this is so this is exactly the punchline. He says, 10 year old said, Dad, you're playing it at one and a half speed." <laughs> <laughs> and he finishes it with a very generationally appropriate doh. Uh, quoting Homer Simpson that the kids these days will have to have explained to them. <clears throat> All right, thank you, Adam, for the feedback. Now for my questions, he says. I was intrigued to hear Ram held the NASDAQ ETF in his Australian super fund. I also hold NASDAQ ETF in Australian super with an ASX 200 ETF and a world ETF. If it's not a rude question, with all of Ram's knowledge and share investing skills, 
why does he stick his super in an industry fund inside an ETF instead of using an SMSF mm. and investing there in shares or ETFs? I ask because I had the same problem. Mm. I don't know the answer to your question. I don't know if I've ever talked to you about this, so feel free to ignore the question if you want. But if you wouldn't mind sharing with Adam, what's the answer to that question? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, in in regard to sort of taking that ETF basis for offshore exposure, I just I've I've just got like all of us is limited bandwidth. So of the time I have available, and I dedicate a lot of time to this kind of stuff, I I, I focus on on the ASX. I, I feel as though I know it better. I'm closer to it. I'm more likely to have an edge. Um, and it just takes up all my time. So if I had if I had unlimited time, I, I'd probably do the same in offshore markets. But it's just it's just a really mm. easy no brainer step to take to to get what I want. And could I could I potentially do better if I sort of manage that all individually? Yeah, potentially. I just I just don't have the time. Um, in the same way, in the same way that you know, I I, I, I could do a lot of things that I outsource, um, <laughs> you know, and 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 yeah. save some money and, and gain some experience, all, all that kind of stuff. But yeah. you've, you've got to you sort of got to prioritize things. So, but you know, great that, point. That's what it is. Um, uh, and you do it inside Australian Super, inside Industry Super Fund. Or do we? Do we get so Australia, right I use question? I use the um, direct investment option, and the thing right. I like about that is is that it, it's limited, um, but I yep. can buy stocks within the ASX three hundred directly. Yeah, they've got some rules around it. So you don't have nearly as much freedom and flexibility as you would under yeah. an SMSF. Yeah, uh, the trouble with the SMSF is that it's just it, there's there's a lot of costs associated mm-hmm. with it mm-hmm. um, and hassle, it, paperwork, a lot of paperwork, <laughs> a lot of yep. you know. I, I probably yep. I probably should. But in terms of, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. m- most of my money is actually outside of super um, and I, I manage that directly. For the bit that I have to contribute and, and, and do contribute to sort of super, I'm just happy to go with the, the ETF. You know, perfect mm-hmm. is the enemy of good, I often think. So it's kind of like I, de- I have very few concerns that in the, on my deathbed I'll look back and go, oh, man, I probably could have got 2 or 3% per annum better if I'd put in yeah. a lot more effort and, and did that directly. Uh, and, and maybe that's true. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe I'm kidding myself. Mm-hmm. Maybe it would be far, far <laughs> yeah, worse. That's right. But I'm really I'm, – I'm pretty certain that the average will be pretty decent and I'll be, I'll be pretty happy mm-hmm. with, with the results. And, yeah, it's, 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 as, it's as simple as that. There's no, there's no highfalutin academic argument for it. It's, yeah. just, it's, it's right for me and, and, and my situation. But yeah, look. If, if all of a sudden I was gifted a million dollars that I could put in my super, I'd, I'd probably maybe that'd be maybe that would tilt things a little bit differently, and and mm-hmm. I, I would be prepared to burden the, the costs, the paperwork, the red tape, etc., to to do it directly. But sadly, mm-hmm. uh, my super isn't that large <laughs> or anywhere near it, so <laughs> it, it goes into an ETF. But yeah, look, yeah. full full full. There's no right or wrong answer there. It's whatever mm-hmm. whatever suits mm-hmm. uh, you most. So, yeah, I think SMSFs have got a lot of great things going for them. Yep. Good on you if you've got one. <laughs> I Yeah, I mean, I'm going to agree with you. I don't I, – I don't. I actually – I have an Australian super account because Motley Fool provides some insurance through that. So it turns out I have one, but I don't use it for super for investing. Uh, the better – the more that S, uh, industry funds – sorry, S, industry funds, I had to say. Yes, the more that industry funds continue to improve – the more likely I am actually to revert back from an SMSF, quite honestly, mm. for all the reasons you just said. Like for all of the effort, um, I don't think people should be allowed to borrow in super. I know that's a controversial view. But it's my view. Um, I don't think it super needs to be or should be particularly risk-seeking given its role and given the chance of blowing up your retirement, getting this stuff wrong. And I don't think it needs to be super complex or have super weird assets in it. So mm. really honestly... Um, 
I, I'm not my, – my super is entirely shares and a bit of cash um, and that cash is largely just transactional cash, not a not an asset allocation choice. Mm. Um, I, I am really not that far away from literally going, you know what, I can chuck this whole thing in, go back to Australian super, use a direct investment option or some other industry super fund and do every bit as well. Um, for half the paperwork, it's mm. it's just it's an easy it's an easy decision. I may not because I like to be able to manage my money. <coughs> excuse me, in terms of the money you know, money out and asset allocation. But you know, ASX three hundred plus some ETFs. You don't have to go much further than that. I I would actually honestly argue most people shouldn't go much further than that. Um, at least with the vast bulk of their super, because it's you know, in 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 a, in a you know we talk about the bell curve and the range of distributions. You know, people will be able to visualize that bell curve. I don't want anyone in super risking being at the bottom end of that bell curve for the chance of being at the top end. I just don't think mm. I was on super's for policy-wise. I would have no issue if the government said, you know what, there are new rules around super. <laughs> I know this is a controversial view. Um, I would happily trim that distribution at both ends given the choice. Mm. If, if, we, if we could, in, from a policy perspective, say let's actually, yep, no one, people won't be able to earn 45% using margins and CFDs and borrowing and whatever else, mm. but it means that correspondingly, People who you try that and get it wrong end up with nothing, end up on the public purse. Um, I'd, I'd happily, I'd happily cut off both ends of that distribution given the choice, and mm. I have no, I would have zero issue if, if the government tomorrow said they're all outlawed, you've all got to use a direct investment option and an ASX three hundred with some ETFs. I wouldn't raise my voice against it. I really wouldn't. Mm. Like I'm kind of inclined to suggest that choice is better than less choice, but I'd have, I'd have no issue if that was the rule. Yeah, that's a broader philosophical point, but I I, I, sem- I sympathise with that. No, I, I no, I think you make I think you make a good point. But um, which well, is your, your point of your point of you can do almost all of it in the in you know with the ASX 300 plus ETFs. I think that's almost my point. It's just it's just just echoing your point in a different. In a different it's, it's, it's a question of differences in outcomes too. Like if if mm. if if there was a very good reason to suspect that the the more passive, easy option was going to deliver really subpar returns. Yet if mm. I put a bit of effort mm. in, I'm going to get really great returns, then, yeah, obviously I'd do it. But yeah. when you are really talking about something that, yes. you know, over a 30-year time frame is is probably uh, on average per annum. Yep. We often talk about how much 2% a year makes over the long term. Mm-hmm. So don't get me wrong, it does compound out to be a, a, yep. a significant difference, but it's not as though it's going to be a disappointing outcome. I think it was a great, I, we've mentioned Morgan before, Morgan Housel, mm-hmm. um, really great US uh, investment commentator, writer, and mm-hmm. he invests everything through through ETFs, mm-hmm. uh, inside and outside of what their 401 yep. and, and K and, and direct. And yep. he's, 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 he's mentioned one time that his friends go, oh, why don't you do that? Is it? And he's like, well, the, the assumption here is that I'm actually getting really bad results, but my, my returns <laughs> have actually been really fantastic. Exactly. You know, could have they been better? Potentially, but they could have also been a bit worse. But I've actually, don't feel yep. sorry for me. I've yep. actually done extraordinarily well because we all know what, what markets have done over over the last 20 yep. years. It's been it's been phenomenal. So, you know, it's- and That's kind of my point because of what super is. Super is supposed to, you know- Take your own, take your own risks with your own portfolio if you want to. As long as you know what you're doing, I, I do think people are, are sometimes ill-informed or under-informed. But as long as you know what you're doing, mm. with personal money, do what you want. But super's mm. very, very role. Like the very fundamental idea is, this is to give you some money for retirement and take some pressure off the public purse, mm. not a plaything for you to try and you know put on red or black at the, at the casino and take whichever one rolls out. Right? It's it's yeah. it, it. There, there's something I think there's a social contract, a construct, contract. That's what I meant to originally say, a social contract. Um, 
with the rest of us, which is super is tax advantaged. Mm. It's you know all it's, it's employer mandated. It, it, the, the, I, I would suggest, and again, put, put people's nose out of joint. The other side of that contract, from our individual perspective, is don't screw it up. Mm. <laughs> you know, don't take silly risks. Don't don't run the risk of ending up with nothing or almost nothing, mm. and then go back on the public purse for all the tax deductions for all your employer contributions. Mm. You you know the idea of putting it on metaphorical red or black is like it's not kind of you know total distributions. It's not what it's for. It's it's to, it's to compound away hopefully at a moderately good rate, but. Mm. You know, it's the old slow and steady wins the race, tortoise and hare thing. I think that's uh, super should be the tortoise, surely, if mm. nothing else. Mm. Yep. Anyway, agreed. agreed. Let's uh, let's not get sidetracked entirely on this question. Adam has a second one. I heard about Harry Brown's permanent portfolio. Now, I've never heard of this one, mate. So, in another podcast, says Adam. Sorry, I stray on weekdays. He says, obviously not a podcast, mate. We've got to put out daily podcasts to keep Adam Adam uh, focused. Uh, his idea is investing uh, is to in- split your investing. shares, 25% cash, 25% bonds and 25% gold with a rebalance every year back to 25% in each. What are your thoughts on this? Can it really return 8 to 10% return regardless of the state of the market? I find it hard to grasp, but happy to be enlightened. Sorry for the long questions. No, you're very welcome. Full on Adam. Mm. Um, I've not heard of this permanent portfolio, mate. There is, I think um, Ray Dalio has this all-weather portfolio kind of idea, which is something similar-ish, I think. I think, I think. Um, your thought on, on kind of a, a four-way split rebalanced every year? Um, yeah, so it's hard to, to tackle it directly because I'm, I'm not familiar with the gentleman and, and, and mm. the precise thesis that he's putting forward. Yep. But I would argue that, so in investing in economics, there's always a compromise. Yep. And so- by adding in things like cash in such a significant weighting, it's going to reduce your volatility. You know, yep. it's, it's going to make for much smoother returns. And if that's by the goal, definition, it, by definition, yep. and if that's the goal, then then job done. But mm-hmm. but understand that there's no free lunch. The the, mm-hmm. the there is a huge cost in well, particularly over long periods of time. There's a massive cost. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no billionaire on the planet who made their money through savings accounts in cash. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't happen. So while you get certain benefits for it, you by definition, really, you, you get you're going to get a very, very, very ordinary return. In fact, in a negative, mm. real return, inflation adjusted on cash over long periods of time, it's going to be a huge drag. So for me, um, you know, I'm you know mid forties, this kind of thing. I'll I'll happily have zero cash allocation. And my my and again for me, there's a compromise there as well. What's the compromise? What well, means that it's going to be a much bumpier, much more volatile ride. But I'd mm. almost bet barring the collapse of civil, civilization, I'll be much, 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 much better served in the year uh, uh, 2060 uh, or 2050 or whatever it happens to be in terms of, of having that allocation. So I, I would think if you're if you're 68, then that's a very different conversation. Yeah. Is, uh, the, yeah. There's a lot of the, and again, I don't want to be critical to the author here because I, I, I lack the context, mm-hmm. but I, I, I think that it's actually very reckless for people to alloc younger people particularly and by young and as I get older my definition of young changes by the way <laughs> <laughs> so young is no, any, no, those 45 year old whippersnappers <laughs> me and below is young um, uh, yeah I think it's I think it's actually really reckless and and and, and damaging mm. for you. you 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 will have a very real cost just by trying to smooth out volatility you might achieve that ends but the cost mm. is is much 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 lower, uh, longer term returns. So I, I would I would be aware of that. Mm. You know, I think gold is at the same price as it was ten years ago. You know, I just I'm a very I'm not mm. I'm you know again I always put noses out of joint. People some the gold bugs just go nuts for it. Good for you. I I, I feel as though 
a lot of the touted benefits don't actually seem to be materialized or, or evidenced mm. over long periods of time. Give me equities, 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 and mm. and uh, I'll cop I'll cop all the volatility and and quote unquote risk and risk in this context mm. just means volatility, um, yeah. because I I well every, every bit of data up until this point in time and who knows what happens in the future would suggest that that's, that's a far more sensible approach. So yeah, good good on good on Harry, um, but it's not for me. Yeah, I completely agree. Actually, I don't know the basis either. I, I can't imagine you could reliably return eight to ten percent per year with twenty five percent in cash. Almost by definition, um, I guess if you go back far for when cash was worth more, maybe in the future it's worth more. Uh, but if you're getting almost nothing on cash, the other seventy five percent's got to do the heavy lifting to get you to eight or ten or twelve, mm. um, which means those assets together need to earn ten to twelve. I'm generous, probably a little bit more, nine to thirteen. Uh, and then a bond's going to do that, probably not. So then the cat, you know, gold's got to do more. Yeah, it's it's a hard one. Um, okay. Gold hasn't gold hasn't done spectacularly well over time, nor has cash. If half your portfolio is in those two assets, you're going to have much less volatility, Ram, which is your point. Oh, you'll, um, you'll be really glad for, like, when the market crashes, mm. um, not if, like when, like it'll happen at various points in, in, your, yep. in your investing career, you'll be really glad you're in those asset classes, right? Because they're, they're going to be far more resilient. Um, <laughs> but, but they're also going to be massively underperformers in the good times. And it's generally, you know, for every, for every, on average, the market goes up uh, two years in every three. Yeah, and yeah. and so it's you know here's here's a little here's a rant here's a rant for you Scott um, oh dear uh, we got we got fifteen minutes in or so oh, seventeen minutes that's good mate well done <laughs> okay <laughs> so when when you first get your you you leave uh, school uni whatever it is and you go into the workforce and you you filling out your the, the employer gives you your super options they give you these boxes to tick and the boxes will say things like conservative. Uh, I forget all of them, but, you know, one is high risk. Now, a 20-year-old looking at that, a sensible 20-year-old is going to go, well, I don't want to, this is my life savings. You know, this is my future here. Why would I take a high risk? I'm going to tick the conservative or the balanced option because it, it sounds like the simple thing to do. Um, but it's absolutely, for all the reasons we described, the absolute wrong reason to do it. Now, again, if you're knocking on the door of retirement, balanced conservative options are the way that you want to go. Yeah, for yeah. a 20-year-old to tick those boxes is mm-hmm. insanity. It is mm-hmm. absolute insanity. But And it's not their fault for ticking that, and so many people do. I did yep. when I when I first. Yes, yeah, so I, I, I totally yeah. got not taking, well, I'm, I'm a sensible person. I'm not taking massive <laughs> amounts of risk with my, with my retirement savings. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way they frame the question is really, really, really misleading, mm. and um, it, it, it's a it's a very unfortunate thing because it forces a lot of money to be just dead wasted money mm. when it should mm. be put it put towards the quote unquote higher risk option. And again, risk isn't the way that we would normally talk about it in 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 normal English. Mm. Risk, I would argue, as Buffett would argue, is the yep. is, is the yep. risk of permanent capital loss. That's a risk. Yes. The yeah. fact that something could be up 10%, down 10%, move all over the place over the next few, that's not risk, that's volatility. And they're very, very, very different mm-hmm. things. And uh, it's a mistake for anyone uh, with, with more than 10 years, I would say, to retirement to, to, to be too conservative and too balanced because there is a cost on that and the cost is much lower returns over that period. There's no 10-year there's no period in the history of the ASX. I think there might be one example in the U.S., um, where you were worse off after ten years, and that's picking any starting point. 
any starting point. So the top of the 87, before the 87 crash, before the dot-com crash, before the GFC, Mm -hmm. before COVID, you could have put the – well, we haven't had 10 years since COVID, but I'm pretty sure that if if you you pick those absolute tops of the market and 10 years later you're still uh, uh, ahead and that's that's what you need to think about. Now, with cash and these things, what you're guaranteed to be is exactly the same. In fact, adjusted for inflation, lower. So mm-hmm. bear, bear all that in mind, I would say. I completely 100% agree. I'm going to add one rider, which is simply that those are the mathematical answers. And I will just continue to add my behavioral realities that if you're someone who can't actually see that volatility happen over 10 years without reacting to it, then you are better taking a lower volatility option in the first instance and letting those lower returns they're not going to freak you out, compound even at slightly lower rates mm. than freaking out doing the exactly the wrong thing at exactly the wrong time. That's true. Um, That's- so, you know, to your point of, you know, the market's never gone down, those numbers are mathematically correct. I would, I would advise exactly the same thing, except if when, uh, like in March 2000, the market falls 40%, you said, this is stupid, my super just lost 40%, I'm going to cash right now and miss the upside, you would have been better to be balanced along the way so your super only fell 20% and you were able to stay the course more significantly. So, um, and I know you're not saying the alternative, mate, I'm just making that point to people who are listening who are like, I hear you, but <laughs> if, you're, if you're someone who can't, if you, if you literally can't withstand a 40% fall temporarily, then you need to make, without doing something silly, uh, and I don't mean silly to be critical, I just mean it would be silly in, in the fullness of time, looking backwards as we are already now, let alone what happens in future, um, then you need to kind of prepare your own, you know, in my head I've got this, the bumpers in the uh, in the temp and bowling lanes, right? If you need to put the bumpers in there, then do that. If it costs you some potential returns to make sure the ball gets to the end of the of the alley, of the lane, mm. and mixing my metaphors, um, then do that. But I, mathematically, mate, theoretically, I 100% agree with you and I would do exactly the same thing. Well, the good thing about uh, these, uh, a lot of these super annuation products, you only get that statement once a year. So you actually get you know, <laughs> yeah, a lot of the volatility is invisible. Um, uh, people can log on and see them these days. I'm like, don't do that. Don't like, you know, here's an app for your super. Like, don't, no, you don't, you don't no, want that. No, like no. you want someone to actually intercept your mail every year and say, I'll give it to you in 10 years time. Ignorance That's is what you bliss. really want. Ignorance is bliss. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Hey, wasn't Harry Brown a Michael Caine movie? I don't know. I think it was a very good one from memory. Anyway, there you go. Anyway, next question. That's what it is. <laughs> uh, let's go to a question from Craig. Hi, Scott and Pagey. Thank you for responding to my questions on crypto and NFT. Oh, bloody hell, Craig. On NFTs. <laughs> Two follow-up questions, if I may. Now, I can't remember which side of the argument Craig was on on this one. Probably uh, maybe for his benefit, maybe for yours. I'm not entirely sure. We talked about expected values when we talked about Bitcoin. We talked about investment oh, yeah. assets and just talked about, you know, there's a range of outcomes and sometimes there's a low probability of a high, massive return. Mm. Sometimes there's a high probability of a tiny return. There's lots of, there's a probability of a negative return at mm. some level as well. Add all those probabilities together and you get the future expected value. Um, that's roughly, you know, let, let, let's do some fun. Yeah. 50% chance of $10, 50% chance of $8, expected value is nine bucks, mm-hmm. right? You take the probability times the return, add them together. That's your, that's your expected value. Mm-hmm. Craig asked a couple of interesting questions about Bitcoin. Is the positive expected value of Bitcoin knowable, Andrew? No, it's not. No, no, it's totally not. Um, so this is the thing with expected value. It comes from the realm of uh, what you, probabilities that can be defined. So if we're talking about mm-hmm. a roulette wheel or a pair yeah, of yeah. some dice or coins, we right. can do it with absolute precision. Yep. You, you, you can't know the probability of, of what 
whether or not it's going to work out that way and if it does, what the return is going to be. So yep. so it's it's only as good as the assumptions you put in. So someone else could look at the exact same scenario and say, well, actually, mm-hmm. it's a negative mm-hmm. expected value because I actually think the odds of it working out well are much lower. And I think even mm-hmm. if it does work out, the upside is much less. And and, and, in, and they're absolutely right in, in using the assumptions that they've plugged in mm-hmm. that it would be mm-hmm. a negative expected value. So it's only as it's a, it's a useful framework to th- to to think uh, through, but you it's only as it's only as good as the assumptions you put in. So when I sort of mm. say, oh, it's got a positive expected, well, that's, that's based on my yeah. my read of it. Yeah. And so I can't know. You're absolutely right. I can't. I can't possibly. The best I can do is make an educated guess. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that could totally be wrong. No matter. No, just just because I call it educated doesn't mean it's anything other than just a total <laughs> guess. So yeah. 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 Yep. It's a really good point. Really good point. And of course, as these probabilities, not only so not only do you not know the probability of each potential event, you don't really know the payoff of each event. No, right? no, so, no. And that and that's so I will say, mate. By the way, this gets to the next question. Um, to, to the questions asked and answered beautifully and 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 accurately directly, uh, but that's also true of almost every other asset class oh, yeah. out there, with the yep. exception of cash, which even I guess arguably you could say there's a chance of losing it all, there's a chance interest rates will change, so even then it's not perfectly knowable. Mm-hmm. Um, over a short term with a term deposit, I guess you expect the value is knowable, but then that's not probability. That's kind of you know, yeah. um, that's a guarantee. A- any anything any any probability tree. Even, even, and this is the other thing about expected values, right? You have to play the game enough times because the expected value of one spin of the roulette wheel is, on average, known. But that's specific. it's like a like a coin toss said a million mm. times. The expected value of a coin toss is fifty percent, right? Mm. Or fifty heads, fifty percent tails. Mm. The expected value of one coin toss, I mean, technically still fifty yeah. percent. The outcome's going to be hundred or zero, though. Yeah, you, like, there is nothing in between. Yeah. So you've got to do it enough times to be worthwhile, and even then. Uh, the inputs are unknowable with any investment by definition. By the way, because if it was knowable, then it wouldn't have a risk premium. <laughs> you know, we 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 get offered great value because the future is uncertain. That's exactly why we can make the returns we make, mm. even at the total market level, let alone individual stocks, mm. because the future isn't known. Mate, the second question from Craig goes from that. Is the positive expected value of Bitcoin greater than your best investment ideas? I think it was a really nice way of asking the question because you talked yeah. about opportunity costs plenty mm. of times. I think we talked about it on Friday mm. um, in a different, very different context. Um, yeah, uh, outright. What's your, what's your answer to that question? Uh, yeah, well, I, um, so the, the thing with, with, with Bitcoin is is that the, 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 both the upside and the, and the probability uh, so well, the, the, what I've got to be really careful how I frame this because it's all so 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 sub- subjective, it and is. then I'm going to contrast that against an, another subjective interpretation of a particular stock that I that I own. Um, so okay. the, the 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 value in it more comes through. So often you have conversations with people and they'll say, "I really like this because I think it's got the potential to do that," mm-hmm. and and it, it's a really great starting point. You say, "That's great." Now let's let's. That's mm. you know what you you've said what you think the potential is now let's put some odds yeah. around that yeah. and now let's also say let's assume you're wrong for the sake of argument what's the downside there so it allows you to sort of put it take whatever your assumptions may be right or wrong but then mm. put it into a framework that allows you to do that and objectively compare it amongst a range of different op- investment opportunities mm. so you're right you should you should probably have a bit of a think about that for your bitcoin mm. for your individual stocks for your ETS for your property whatever it happens to be and then, and then logically, you would say, 
what you do is you emphasize and, and weight most heavily in the one that has the best expected mm. value, mm. as long as as long as you're reasonably confident on on the assumptions that you're using. <laughs> so does it? The, the specific question is a hard one to answer. To does it have a better expected value than other things in my portfolio? I think in, on in on, on some it probably does, on others it probably doesn't. But I'm very much trying to use that framework to say, well, no matter what I hold, whatever the asset class is, I've hopefully right. thought it through where they're all of a positive expected value. And um, yeah, <laughs> again, is, is one slightly, but yes, if I was to actually go through and do each and every single one and come up with values, there'll be, yeah. some, I'm sure there'd be some that, that, that had a, had a, had a higher one. But then again, but what's interesting about it is that that could change next time I do the exercise in six months because my thinking yeah, has changed, yeah. new information has come to light. Maybe the price of one of the companies I liked has gone up a bit, which is, then changes the whole return expectation. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 it's very fuzzy. I think this is where people get hung up on things where they, they it, you know what, the experts do this worse than anyone. They start believing their own models and, <laughs> you know, they are very, very useful tools yeah. to help frame your thinking and help help you work through things. But just never, ever mistake it for objective reality because it's yeah, not. Good point. So it's, it's, only, it's only something there that's going to help give you signposts as to, to the right mm-hmm. decision to make. And you need to be very willing to, to alter your views as I say, new information comes to light, or just your thinking changes mm. on things. Mm. Mm. But yeah, it's for, for me. For me, and let's not get into the debate with Bitcoin. But I feel as though <laughs> this is again. It's always such a it's such an either or thing. It's yeah. just like yeah. let's say let's say I did do the exercise and it had a superior expected value than everything else. That doesn't mean I go one hundred percent in that, mm. right? Because mm. as you say, I only get one roll of the dice on this. That's I'm, the point I was going to make. Right? Yeah. It's, it's actually. It's actually not even about the individual. Here's the thing. The expected value will never be realised, mm. literally by definition, because you can't have all of those outcomes in a single no, outcome. No. If, I've, if I've got five different possible outcomes, each worth a different amount, they will, they will morph when you do the calculations, 5% chance of $100,000, 10% chance of $1,000, mm. 50% chance of $500, you know, uh, whatever I'm up to, 20, 30% chance of mm. minus $400. Mm. None of those will come true because mm. the expected value, or sorry, one of those might. Mm. The expected value of that's going to be 350, I'm not doing the maths here, by the mm. way, someone will stop and repause this and tell me how badly I am. Um, let, let's, let's say the expected value of that is $350. Mm. None of those individual scenarios is 350. No. That's the point, right? So what you're saying is, Mathematically, probabilistically, the expected value is three fifty. You're not going to get that. You're going to get hundred grand mm. or a thousand, or lose five hundred bucks, or whatever the numbers were that I use. And so, you, and that's you know. So, so you, if the situation played out probabilistically, x numbers of times over x numbers of events, then that's what you would, on average, get from yeah. that outcome. Even if your assumptions are right, which they won't be, mm. <laughs> as you've already said, Ram. Yeah. Um, so you're right. It, it's you know the expected value of of an asset investment or idea is x dollars. But that's never going to be the actual outcome. You're going to get minus 500 or plus of 10,000 or whatever the numbers are in between. Yep. Um, and if you do it multiple times over multiple assets, you're hopefully going to get roughly the average expected value of the portfolio of ideas by getting that roughly right because you're letting it play out a number of times. All, all the expected value analysis does for me is argue for why it should be included. It, but nice. It, but it, that's all that. it does. Like that. Because if it doesn't, then it shouldn't have any place in there at all. Great. If it does, okay, you've, you're, you're a starter. 
but 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 then I, I need to I need to combine that with a range of different ones to to uh, to give me effectively more rolls of the dice. Yeah, exactly right. And that and that's and that's that's why as as you know, I, and people I guess listening long enough will know I'm I, I'm sort of positive on on that whole. Bitcoin mm. thing, but no. yeah, Lord knows I'm not I'm not putting fifty percent <laughs> of my money into exactly. it or even twenty percent, exactly. you know, because I it's want I want multiple way, rolls of the dice. I want multiple. If I'm wrong there, I mm. always have other chances to be right, and and hopefully it all adds up to something decent. The cool kids in finance uh, would say that, and frankly, this is something that Buffett said that I don't disagree with. If you're Warren Buffett, but I'm not, and most mm. people aren't. So, um, uh, you know. I, that's why I have a larger than average portfolio. Most people, who, you know, the cool kids will have just eight companies and be really confident on those and watch mm. those like a hawk and, mm. and I get it, right, conceptually. But the, you need to be more right <laughs> you know, on those eight than the average bear. Mm. And that includes fraud, bad luck, bad timing, misanalysis, um, you know, black swan random events, right? Yeah, yeah. And and I, like I'm, I'm, I'm not going to criticize anyone who wants to have a concentrated portfolio. Knock yourselves out. And yes, Warren Buffett's twenty punch cards and blah blah blah. Um, I think in this case, Buffett is Buffett. He can do that absolutely. I think his idea with the twenty punch card. Many of Buffett's ideas are ways of thinking that are taken by many people as being specific absolutes. Yeah. So Buffett says, think about your investments as if you've only got twenty punch. You've got a twenty hole punch card. You only buy 20 companies. Would this be one of the ones you would buy in your lifetime? Mm. So what he's saying here is make an effort to be really specific and do your deep, deep, deep research and find your highest conviction ideas. He's not saying once you get to 20, you never buy another stock again. No. I mean, look at look at Buffett's own purchase over. I mean, it's, it's just it's just not. It's just, people get really silly about Buffett and other people taking these things literally. Um, and I think that's I think it's a problem if you're that sort of person outright. Again, I'm not trying to criticize anyone listening. Um, he's just saying, you know, do your work. Like, be really sure. Yeah. Uh, but for me, mate, I, I do this for a job. Uh, thus far, my my service I've run for the longest, share advisor, is beating the market by a good margin. I still, that's a, that's a service with 80-something recommendations in my portfolio between Australia and the US. I probably own 35 companies, mm-hmm. which is probably about the top end of what I actually want to own. Mm. Um, but I'm, I'm, I choose to just try and be humble with this. I'm like, you know what? If I had to pick my top eight ideas, am I so sure they'd beat my total portfolio of 35 ideas? No, I'm absolutely not. Maybe they would. Maybe they wouldn't. But I just, I just think, you know, to that point about having enough rolls of the dice, mm. the chance you are right on those with all of those things that could go wrong, just, just now, tossing a coin eight times, would you get 50% heads or 50% tails? Probably not. No. Some people will. Some people will get eight heads, some will get eight tails, some will get something in between. Do it a million times, you're going to get much closer. I just, I don't see the point in artificially constraining a portfolio and therefore relying too much on circumstances playing out the way you hope they might. My most hated Buffett quote in the sense that actually I love what he's saying, but I hate it because it just gets misinterpreted all the time. And it's probably one of his more famous ones, which is rule one, never lose money. (laughs) Rule two, you know, see rule one. Don't forget rule number one. And people go, oh, that means you can never make a mistake. No, he's not not saying that. And he's coming from a guy who's made um, plenty of mistakes and and lost on a lot of individuals. All he's really saying is just like, watch the downside here, you know, And, and, and don't confuse volatility for permanent capital loss 
costs and the rest of mm-hmm. it. So really what he's trying to say is whenever you're making an investment, make sure you're not getting into anything that can just sort of wipe you out, mm-hmm. you know, and, and really focus on that. Because when you focus on the downside, the, the upside takes care of itself kind of thing. But and so and many people- if- no, well, just, so many people just take it literally. Is and oh, you never, you, yeah, can't, yeah. you can't ever lose money. I'm like, well, no, he's not saying that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, there's wisdom. There's the, the, that's the trouble with sort of piffy yeah. sort of little nuggets of, of, of wisdom is, is that they are very general and there's a lot of depth to go in. There's a lot of wisdom underneath all of that and taking mm-hmm. it purely at face value is, is you're missing the point, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the rule number. Buffett bought Justin, is it Justin Boots, I think? That went completely stone motherless broke. Mm. He's lost money in airlines not once but twice in his career, despite famously saying, if I ever want to buy an airline stock, I call Aeroholics Anonymous and they took me off the ledge. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's, just, it's just, you know what I, I sometimes think people, and this is, you and I talked off here about politics, we're not going to go into that, but people want confirmation. Mm. So people who choose to invest as though you can't lose money Grab that and say, see, Buffett said I shouldn't do it either. Mm. As if it's something that justifies what they're already planning to do. Mm. There's a quote for every occasion. There's a justification mm. for every, everything you want to do anyway. If you really want to, you know, find something to just Google, you know, why should I buy a 1,000 stocks? There'll be some article out there saying you should buy a 1,000 stocks because, you're like, see, I told you. Mm. Um, you know, so it's always possible. But you're right, mate. It's, it, it, they are lessons. They are approaches. They are concepts. They are... Um, you know, useful ways of thinking. They're not designed to be literal rules. It's just, it's just yeah, yeah. Um, cool, great question though. Thank you for that, Craig. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. One from Dave. G'day, Scott and Pagey. I did that one, haven't I? Oh, I didn't. Didn't just another Scott and Pagey. People like calling you Pagey. I get a bit of Pagey from my mates. Yeah, yeah. Scott and Pagey. Yeah. Thanks for the podcast. I enjoy listening to your insights, opinions, and rants. <laughs> Dave, we don't need any encouragement, but you've given us even more. Thank you, mate. I'm trying to get my head around how a company benefits from an increase in its share price. Oh, say the I company, love this question. Yes. Say the company X sold 10 million shares at IPO at a dollar each. Mm. So the company received $10 million. Uh, I think they're saying received $10 million for those shares through the IPO, I think mm-hmm. you're saying. $10 million one shares, later, $1 each. They raised $10 million. Yep. Now, by the way, the company doesn't necessarily get the money, um, Dave, because it actually can be paid, normally is paid to the existing shareholders. Occasionally, a IPO is a, a raising additional cash by issuing even more shares, but often it, it's just paying off the people who are selling. So there is that as well, but we'll, we'll skip over that. One week later, we said, the shares are $1.10 each. This is great for Trader Joe, who sells his shares and makes a profit. But all that profit went to Trader Joe's pocket, yep. not to the company. Yep. I also understand that's great for the directors and CEO whose remuneration is tied to the share price and market cap. But what about Company X itself? How does the company benefit by having a 10% increase in its market cap? Great. If that very 10% goes to the traders. Cheers and fool on, Dave. It's a really good one, isn't it? Excellent question. Excellent. So you've got to distinguish here between what they call the primary and the secondary market. Yes. So the primary market is when a company will say, hey, we're going to give you some new shares if you, uh, if you pay us some money. And, and the money yep. that you pay goes to the company that they can use to pursue their growth ambitions and, and, and fund operations. And just to quickly, we say primary market, we went IPO, the very first time a company lists on the ASX. Yes, yep. Yep. So that's that's that's, and they will do that for the very explicit purpose of raising money. Now, mm-hmm. now we've all got our shares, and now we mm-hmm. just swap them amongst each other. Nothing yep. to do with the business. It doesn't yep. doesn't impact it 
well, I was going to say at all. I'll come. I'll come <laughs> back to it. But it does. It doesn't really. Like they. They certainly. They don't get the money. The share in, in, in the in the example there, the share price goes to one hundred dollars. Doesn't doesn't help them at all. Like yep. the, the 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 cash that they have is yep. is is what they have, and they don't they mm-hmm. don't. The people who sold the shares, they get the benefit. So think about CSL or Woolies listing at two or five dollars, whatever those listing prices were. Woolies is forty bucks. CSL is two hundred. Mm. Uh, unless either company's done a, a, a subsequent capital raising, they've not seen a single cent more despite that stratospheric rise. Ah, and that's why it, that's why there is a benefit to a higher share yeah. price for a company is that if you want to raise more money, you don't have to sell as many shares for the same uh, for the same amount of cash raised. So that's why it's yep. nice to have a share, high share price. So this is why companies that are cash flow negative and maybe at an mm-hmm. earlier stage of development. Um, yep. We'll actually spend a lot of time on trying to sort of encourage the share price higher, because encourage is a, encourage is a nice word. Yeah, I hate I, I hate the investor relations industry. It's just too much. It's too much time and effort spent on all of this. <laughs> but they're doing it because it mm-hmm. means like if I've got a hundred shares on issue and it's uh, a, a dollar each, whatever, yep. and yep. I want to raise ten bucks, I have to issue ten more shares. If it's if it's a if the share price is is double, I only have to sell. The dilution is so much smaller. So, so I sell five more shares rather than ten. Yes, and the share count increases by five percent rather than ten percent. In other words, those who used to own the company or still do, but have have their ownership diluted, are diluted by less. Much less. So the the academic way of thinking about this is what they call the cost of capital. So mm-hmm. a high share price means that you can raise money much, much, much cheaper than yep. you would if it's at a very, very, very low price. So, you know, this was interesting with the GameStop. I don't know if you guys yeah, remember yeah. that. It was one of these meme stocks. It was highly shorted. People <laughs> on Reddit got together and pumped it all up. But what did the company do? They raised cash and because they could because with their share price was so high, they, they could raise a lot of money without diluting all of the existing owners. So it's, it is very beneficial on, on that. But, of course, um, th- those, those people who are buying at that much higher price, that's a consideration for yeah. them, right? Because the higher the, the higher the price is, yes, it's great for the company to raise money cheaper, but you're, the hurdles are much more difficult for you because mm-hmm. you've, you know, the, it's just an inverse relationship. The, the higher the price you pay, the, uh, the more um, uh, the, the difficult, the, more, the, the, the less attractive your future return potentials are. But by, mm-hmm. by definition, you know, the company's going to do whatever the company's going to do. At three times, at, uh, at, 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 you know, at $1 a, a share, I might get expect a certain kind of return. At $10 a share, even with the company doing the same thing, my return expectations are going to be a lot lower. Okay. So there's a lot of different moving parts to all of that. But that's, I think it's actually a very good thing to remind yourself of when you're watching prices go up or down is just to distinguish that actually this, all that's changed is what the, the, the mob has decided that they're happy to swap swap uh, the tokens with each other. Um, yeah. uh, Got to be careful using tokens these days, I suppose. It's, <laughs> it's a loaded, it's a loaded term, but that's all they are. They're just they're little, little, little slips of ownership. And and um, yeah, I don't know. But bear, it, 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 the, the business is one thing. Shares are the, are the other, and, and sometimes they they can operate in very different universes. Yeah. Um- Dave, I'm going to uh, I'm going to take one level of abstraction without trying to get too far down the rabbit hole. The company doesn't exist. There's only material, substantial way. It it exists legally. It's a legal person to use the term, which is also just weird, but it is a legal person for the lawyers. But it's only really a holding entity for the interests of the shareholders who band together and say, "Let's all do this thing together." So the company itself doesn't actually really 
benefit in the sense that it's only ever representative of the shareholders. So if the share price goes up, the company doesn't make any money, but the company is only the interest of shareholders. And if the company is worth more, it can be sold for more, the shareholders can get more. So on one hand, it doesn't matter at all. On the other hand, it matters enormously. But in neither case does the company itself have its own independent life outside the control and the ownership interests of its shareholders. Mm. Again, yes, it's a legal person. Yes, you can enter agreements. There's a whole... I don't want to get in an argument with the lawyers um, or even the ideologues. Uh, but so to some degree, that that's also... So, so the company benefiting or the company not benefiting, it's kind of like this really abstract concept because if the company benefits, you're really saying the shareholders benefit, whether they're selling the shares or simply the shares are worth more or, or they're buying shares, um, becoming part of that... that I won't say partnership because again, words have meanings, and partnership is a, is a legal legal structure. But you know what I mean. Mm. That that kind of coordinated uh, deal uh, that the, the group is entering into to do something together, mm. and that's kind of how we should, by the way, never stop thinking about companies because they are the ownership. Well, they they are owned by us. The directors work for us. The board work for us. That you know, the, the the management work for us. That's what they're there to do. Mm. So I just want to make that that general point. Um, because, you know, does the company benefit? Well, again, it's kind of one of those, even if we know the answer, the company itself doesn't really exist in isolation because it's priced on the market regularly. So in theory, that's that's reflected in, in the share price. If the company did benefit, then it would get more money, it'd be worth more money. So the shares would go up and then, you know, again, it's all it's all turtled all the way down, as Andrew likes <laughs> I, to say. I, I need to round it out with a couple of more smaller considerations. A high share price mm-hmm. is also good when you have employee shares and part of remuneration packages. So mm-hmm. Silicon Valley has done very well out of all of this because they attract a lot of talent through employee options and, and all the rest of it. So, again, the money not directly influencing the business in terms of what the share price does, but a, but a, a um, uh, it's an arbitrary term, but a high share price and a share price that is continuing mm-hmm. allows you to attract and retain employees. There's benefits there. And as, yeah. as was said, there's also um, incentive structures often built around share prices as well. So it's sort of there's, there, is, there is that factor. If the share price is doing terribly. It's sort of... It, it takes away the incentive mm. to some extent because, well, oh, whoopsie do I hit my KPIs <laughs> and I get shares that are worth much less than I, I thought that they were. Um, of course, it has, it has horrible, speaking of incentives, it, it, when your incentive is to lift the share price, you're incentivized to do all kinds of things that might not be in the long-term interest of the business but might help the share price do very well in the particular period that your shares vest and there's all other kinds of issues there. But just to tie that back to does it matter to the business? No, not really except in A, the ability to raise capital at a cheap price, B, the ability to sort of attract and retain employees and, and mm. C, in the ability to incentivise management. Yes, um, which in theory are good for shareholders. Yes. Uh, I am. We can am go down a cynical. rabbit hole here, can't we? There's a lot to yeah. say. Yeah. I'm more cynical than you, mate, on, or at least uh, I'm going to say I'm more cynical than you in terms of what I'm going to say next. Uh, you may or may not already agree with what I'm going to say. Um, I think the whole thing is isn't pretty much a debacle and it unfortunately is too often even despite those things you say which are objectively true um, become if not disincentives become counterproductive playthings mm. so perverse incentives perverse incentives thank mm. you um, the CEO wants the share price to go up so they talk it up so it goes up okay fine uh, the CEO whose share price goes up gets convinced by investment bankers to raise capital because look how high the share price is mm whether that's needed or not. Mm. And uh, as one of uh, um, our former colleagues, Joe Mager, used to say, um, debt is temporary, mm. but new shares are forever. Mm. 
And so it's an easy option. Oh, look, who, who's hurt by share price? Right, you know, there's no debt. The company's not at risk. Just, just issue some more shares. Mm. The share price is high. Look how high it is. You know, get some money. Just put it in general working capital in case you want it later. Um, that is absolutely just. It, it's abominable. It shouldn't be allowed, frankly. Um, again, I'm, I, I, I like to say I would ban stuff. I wouldn't necessarily, but yeah. it's you know, investment bankers get their fees by telling company X to raise some more money just in case they might need it. Um, largely, largely rubbish. Um, the higher value shares can be used also to add to yours, Andrew, in mergers and acquisitions. Oh, yes. Again, if you're yes, sorry. Buying a company That's for true. shares, yep. um, you can issue those shares. And again, if you're buying a $50 million company, um, if you've got a $50 share price, you you know, you can buy more of the company or you can buy it for less than if you have a $10 share price. Yep. You just simply yep. have to issue more shares. Sort of another way. It's a version of what you just yeah, about. Yeah, another way of sort of saying access to capital, but yeah, paying, exactly. paying with exactly. shares instead of cash. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Um, so, but but Dave, honestly, mate, the other thing, by the way, so here's and here's the most perverse sense of it all. Ironically, it's us. Mm. It's it's and it's not actually us. It's the fund managers mostly because most CEOs don't take phone calls from us. Uh, they take phone calls from fund managers who say, "I've got to get my performance up this year because I own your shares and your shares are flat or down. And if you don't fix it, I'm going to sell my shares. That'll push your share price down. So get out there, will you, and bloody push the share price up. Go and say something good about the company so the share price goes up. Because then I look big, I look good." Because I'm a fund manager, I own your shares, and I want my my fund to go up in value. And so it's this, it's this ridiculous. And this, you know, I, I rant generally about the share market being perverted by people, not perverted in itself, but perverted. The act of being perverted by people who use it for their own purposes. Mm. The share market is a place where you can exchange interests of capital at prices you think are reasonable. Mm. That's what it's there for. Mm. The fact that fund managers end up, you know, um, browbeating CEOs to go out there and talk up their share price because they want to, you know, look better. The fact that CEOs themselves say, hey, I'm going to get a bonus if my share price goes up. The fact that boards say, we'll give you more money if the share price goes up. The share price becomes the end in itself. Mm. And that's when you know things aren't working. Mm. The CEO who says, I'm not going to talk to the media, like Buffett, right? D- doesn't talk to analysts at all, ever, independently. Just mm. doesn't do it. Mm. Could the share price of Berkshire be higher if he did? If he did the rounds? Yeah, he better would, mm. at least for, for a little while. <laughs> but at the end of the day, value follows, you know, price follows value, right? Right the other way around. Mm. And so there is something to that. I, I, I will say, I'll take a, a half pot shot at Elon Musk here, but also a begrudging one. He created a cult of shareholders that meant he could raise a truckload of capital at super expensive share prices mm. because he could, because he convinced them to do it. Now, it actually might in the event be worth it because if the company then goes on to make actual money and actually justify the high share prices, then he's created some magic. He's created something from nothing by going, hey, everyone, I'm, I'm a genius. EVs are cool. Pay me a fortune. Uh, pay a fortune for the shares because you want to be cool like me. Mm-hmm. And they do. And so the company gets to raise a lot of money, which means it can make those cars and do those things. Um, he's literally, you know, it's Steve Jobs' reality distortion field. He's created that very environment. If Tesla had always been a $1 stock, the company wouldn't exist today, let alone have the cars it's got. So mm. is it the service of the greater good? I guess if you're a, if you're a Musk fan or you want to, you know, use the the old um, ends justify the means mm. thought. Uh, if if Tesla had eventually gone broke or hadn't produced cars or, or maybe in future it's worth a lot less, then arguably he convinced people to pay inflated prices. Mm. Now, open market, free market, you do it if you want. Um, but those are, some of the, those are some of the thoughts. Yeah. Good question. Anything else on that, mate? No, it's a great question. Beautiful. Uh, we've got time for one more, I reckon. Let's, let's sneak one more in. Uh, question from Craig this time. Hi, Scott and Andrew. I've only recently discovered your podcast and I'm now an avid listener. 
I actually look forward to Fridays and Sundays and the new episodes. He said in brackets, yes, really. As if we didn't think you were serious, Craig. I'm not sure what we're supposed to imply by that. <laughs> I am trying to take your advice and not follow my share portfolio or individual share prices as regularly as I have in the past. But I still like to keep up with news about my investments. Oh, yeah. One thing that confuses me is sometimes the guidance given by merchant banks and investment houses. For example, quote, target price raised 2.4% to $43, mm. end quote, even though the shares are currently trading at over $50. Meanwhile, another merchant bank has raised their target price to $61. The second one makes more sense to me. I read this as that they will continue to rate it as a buy until it reaches 61 bucks. I have no idea of the meaning of a target price set significantly lower than the current trading price. So how do I interpret this? Do the two banks see vastly different futures for the share price? Or do they have different strategies and therefore different targets? Or am I missing the point entirely? I always learn something from tuning into you guys. Thanks in advance for clearing up my confusion. Cheers, Craig. Another great question. We've got yeah. some really, really good questions. Yeah. Um, do you want to cut? Yeah, you go. Yeah, well, look, I mean, it's been answered. Um, uh, yeah, they've got different assumptions and they might be mm. applying it to slightly different models. You know, who's right? We'll see. Maybe neither of them, <laughs> you know. Almost we, certainly neither of them. We do we do put too much emphasis on 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 what these people say. Um, True. Not, not, not to mean in an unfair way. There's, I'm not saying that there's any sort of tomfoolery there or sort of you know, uh, an effort to deceive or anything like that. It's just two reasonable, well-meaning, rational people can come up with very different expectations, mm, mm, mm. Um, and they're all guesses. Again, they, we, we, you know, I think I think company X Y Z is going to grow at this much, and all I only think it's going to grow up there. Yep. You know, they're, they're 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 only as good as as what they assume. So yep. you, that that's that should be the real telling thing here is when you look at all of these these various research houses and such the, a wide array of views around it. Just is a good mm, room. Not, again, mm. not just mean throw it all in the bin, but just to show you how. Um, fuzzy this whole process is and how you can get a very different range of views. So for me, I actually find it useless. If say you say Merrill Lynch values BHP at this and Credit Suisse values it at that, it's like, well, it means nothing. What, what really, what I want to see when I read the reports is what growth are you assuming around that? You know, what, what, what's the discount rate that you're using? Or what you, 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 it, it's more about how you got there that is, that is more important than the number that, that you that you end yep. up with because that's, that's, that's what's going to be really revealing in their thinking. And it doesn't, I mean, if, if it turns out that the inputs are, are completely flawed, well, that number's just going to be complete nonsense. Um, so, so take it all with a grain of salt. It's, it's, more, it's more about trying to take a particular person or group's vision of the future and mm. reduce that back to a number. And it's a useful exercise. Mm. We should all be, I often say that I think valuation is a really important thing to do. It's something we can never know for sure, but the process is very valuable in forcing you to think about the right things and trying to identify a price that's going to allow for a reasonable return. But never mm. never convince yourself that what you've done is fact. It's it's a guess and, 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 and it's a series of guesses applied to, you know, one of a, a gazillion different types of models. But it's, it's, mm. is it handy to think of? Yeah. Should, should you not do anything like that? No, no, absolutely not. But, but just, just remember that these, these end uh, outputs are, are a consequence of a whole bunch of different assumptions that go into it. And it's, it's really, it's really the, it's, it, when looking at these, you need to sort of ask yourself, well, is, 
is that reasonable? Yeah, that's right. You know, so so when someone Afterpay had a lot of discussion around this when it was listed, mm. you know, mm. it's like someone would say it's you know worth four hundred dollars a share. Well, they might be right actually because with underneath that mm. they're actually saying, well, we expect the the per share earnings of this to grow at thirty percent every year for the next fifteen years. In which case, mm. yeah, absolutely it is. Uh, someone says, no, it's only worth 50 bucks because they'll only grow at this amount. So that, that, the question isn't which is the better price, but which is the better set of assumptions that I think is most realistic. Mm. And, and because that's such a thorny conundrum, because, <laughs> I mean, how do you know? That's why they, they say, or I think it was Benjamin Graham, the three most important words in investing are margin of safety. So mm. you, give, you give it your best and you try to come up with a, a, a set of assumptions that are reasonable. But within that, you overlay that a lot of – you put a big buffer in there because you, mm. you're almost mm. certainly going to be wrong. But the more that you account for that wrongness, the more it's kind mm. of uh, immune uh, to, to, the, to the inevitable vicissitudes of, mm. of the market mm. and, and earnings. Mm. It's um, – that's all true, mate. I, I want to talk to the, tar- the target bit for a second because um, – just to add to what you've already said, which is perfect. If you think like a, if you think like an analyst, that that your version is true. If you're thinking like someone who's trying to sell investment advice, and by the way, Motley Fool sells investment advice. So I'm not. I'm going to throw stones at my own glass house as well as other people's. But with the difference, we don't give target prices. Here's the here's the problem. A target price is is an investment bank or a broker saying, I think in 12 months the price will be X. Now that means that they believe they have some specific insight into both. What the company will do in terms of, I want to say the company, I really mean how it will go. So the company, its market, its competitors, its suppliers, its customers, the pricing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, how it will do and how the stock market will respond to that outcome in terms of what it will do to the company's share price based in theory on that profitability or otherwise and the expectations of future profitability or otherwise and it'll pick a number. So let's say this company is at $50. One bank thinks that the price will fall from 50 to 43 in exactly 12 months for reasons best known to themselves and probably expressed in a very long and thorough piece of research, which is legitimate, by the way. The research is almost always very good. Um, the work they do to actually explain and understand the company is always very good. Uh, but they're going to then do, you know, 55-line long P&Ls out X number of years and apply some sort of weighted average cost of capital and discount rate and market expectation and PE and whatever else they do. And they say, I think the price is going to fall by seven dollars in the next twelve months. The other one is going to go up eleven dollars in the next twelve months. So, to your question, Craig, and to Ram's point, it's just different assumptions that are baked in. So, there's nothing wrong with that. The problem I have is when you say the price will then be forty-three bucks. There is just no way of knowing. Mm-hmm. Right? Think about some of the companies that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. Some of the tech companies that have had a terrible last six months, even though they might be growing really nicely, because the market just changed its mind about the stocks. Mm. Now, if any of those analysts in their report said, and I think that in November 2021, the market will start hating tech stocks and the PEs will be compressed by whatever or the price to sales ratio is compressed by whatever and therefore that's why they're worth less, then I was going to say good on them. I will simply say they managed to speculate wildly and be <laughs> somehow right. Um, everyone else didn't know it was going to happen. No one knew it was going to happen, of course, but everyone, no one else pretended they knew it was going to happen. And so they were, in air quotes, wrong. And that's just kind of silly, right? Mm. Similarly, if the market changes mind about tech stocks to go back up again and the business's performance doesn't change, what you're doing is measuring, guesstimating, but then trying to apply a change in sentiment. Mm. 
And it just is really, 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 really silly. We talked on Friday about share prices moving wherever they moved in three months. And Andrew made the very clear point that it's useless and not very, you know, not, not very, uh, it was not knowable and it's useless, put it that way. Same with 12-month periods. So honestly, ignore both of them. Like ignore both of them entirely. If they were to say, I think a $50 share is worth $61 mm. today because of this future I foresee, that's a different question. I was going to they don't that do that. Point. They say, here is what the price is going to be in 12 months' time. Can I double down this is on dumb. that? Yeah. Please, go for it. So the, the, the terms get used interchangeably. So you'll hear target price and you'll hear valuation. They kind of feel like the same thing, but they're different. Valuation is saying, I feel as though the company is worth this much. Yep. Target price is, I think I will. the company will get to this price within a certain time frame. They're very, yep. they're very different things. So you can actually have a valuation. I actually feel as though company X, Y, and Z is worth 50% more than the current market is valuing at it. Yep. But, and I can say that, but it's at the same time say, but I have no idea when, the, when, when that's going to be realised. Mm-hmm. You know, may, maybe it takes another five years before that, that valuation is actually borne yeah. out. Um, so, so it's very, very, very different. Valuation mm-hmm. is much more important than a target price. Because as you say, with target price, you have to, you, you, you're you've got a million variables that are so hard to sort of predict on mm-hmm. their own, impossible to predict mm-hmm. on their own. And then you're choosing to add to that the most unpredictable thing of all, which is market sentiment and time frame. you know, which is it's just, it's, it's taking a diabolically hard problem and making it 10 times harder. So mm-hmm. yeah, target prices, mm, uh, valuations, <laughs> yay, <laughs> much better. Yes. Um, and they're not perfect either. Let me just emphasize that. Correct, correct, but it's the thing. It's the thinking. I, I think something is worth X is different to I think something will the market will price it at Y at yeah, on day nice. day Q. Nice. Yes, exactly. I like Q. Q is good. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yes, and, and Craig, to your point, you're saying, look, the second one makes sense. The bank thinks it's a buy until it reached sixty one dollars or whatever it was in this case. Um, and he says, I have no idea of the meaning of a target price set significantly lower. All they're really saying, and this, this is important, when they say, tar- this is, I just want to tease this out because I think Craig is seeing target as we hope it will go there or we're doing something because we expect it to be there. Mm. They may do, uh, but that, that's different from what they then say do. Now, in theory, they would say if the target price is going to be lower, you should sell because the share price is going to fall is what they're saying. Equally, if the share price is going to be higher at some future point, they would say, well, obviously you want to make money, so you would buy those shares. Mm. That's how you could use that information. They may not necessarily call it a buy per se. It gets more confusing than that because they might say, I think the share price is going to be 10% higher, but I think the market's going to be 15% higher. Mm. So it's I wouldn't buy it. I wouldn't say it's a sell, but you know, it's, it's, it, it's not a buy because it's going to lose to the market even if it goes up from here. Mm. So there are times when even a higher share price isn't a buy for them. And again, I'm not defending them or, or, or spruiking on their behalf, just to explain it. Some would say, yeah, look, you know, the $40 share price can be 43 by the end of the year is fine, but they might say, well, the market's going up further than that. So it's going to go up, but it's not a buy because you're not going to make more than the market. And most of us, if you're buying individual shares, should be trying to beat the market. So anything that's not going to beat the market shouldn't be a buy mm. if you follow that line of logic. Mm. Um, the same as the share price is down. In theory, you would say, I think it's a it's a sell. You might say, some analysts might say, well, I think the market's going to crash 40% by the end of the year. So it's actually going to do better than the average market return, uh, in which case, again, you can make your own decisions to whether you buy or sell them. So don't, don't assume that that's specifically what the market is doing or says it's trying to do. Um, it's just that difference in terms of the way they, the, their target price is where I think the share price will be. Whether I think they sh- you should buy or sell is normally a different decision, but you can reasonably assume that a share price going up by enough is a buy. A share price going down should be a, a sell in theory. And that's why they're doing it. They're trying to say, yeah, it's overvalued at the current price mm. and that would imply a sell. Mm. Mm. Yep. 
Anything else from you? No, no. Uh, you know, it's you said it earlier. It's just there's there's some we there is nothing more appealing than certainty. <laughs> you know, and someone so gives it's it- so easy to say. it's it's it's. Yeah, it's a bastardization because it's so easy to sell, right? Yeah, well, people know what people know what works with 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 selling, and so they construct messages to convince you that they're worth following. It's just so, very the hyper specificity is just so so appealing yeah. to have someone with a really fancy um, name behind them, an institution behind yeah. them, say with great authority that the company is worth X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Um, Whereas opposed to someone who goes, geez, there's a whole bunch of future potential outcomes on a balance mm-hmm. of probabilities. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably worth a bit more than this. And, you know, mm-hmm. you start speaking in very vague terms. It's just a very unappealing <laughs> sales message. <laughs> right. Really unappealing, right. you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. The weatherman who gets on the TV news every night and goes, I don't know, there's <laughs> probably going to be this. The, 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 yeah. the, the person who says, oh, it's, it's going to rain three mils of rain on next Thursday. Yeah. It's, it's, it's much more, it feels much more yeah. use, useful. But, it's, you know, yes. we just, yeah. unfortunately, we just don't live in that, that kind of universe. We don't. We live in our universe and we're going to go and enjoy that universe, Ram. We're going to uh, hang up on this podcast. Thank you for spending some time with me. I appreciate it. Oh, always, always lots of fun. Listeners, thank you for spending some time with us as well. We'll be back next week. And make sure you tune in. Hopefully, a stock of the week on Wednesday and uh, a new episode on Friday. Got something really cool coming up for you this Friday. Um, it's we're, we're going to be on a leave, or I'm on leave, and Andrew is uh, done me a favour and pre-recorded some podcasts. We're going to look at finding ways of identifying some of the greatest businesses on the ASX. Really fun conversation. Just a quick behind the curtain. We've already pre-recorded the first episode. So I know what's going to be said. It is lots of fun, super interesting. Uh, here, Andrew, trample all over my future points I'm about to make. Uh, but it's, it's, it's lots and lots of fun. Uh, really just, you know, we talk, a lot of people ask us regularly, hey, how can I find um, great companies to invest in? I think this will give you some ideas, both in terms of the things to look for, and we also name some companies uh, that meet some of the traits we'll talk about. So a really, really cool episode. Um, Another mailbag, of course, on Sunday. So make sure you come back for that. But in the meantime, full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.